Before we get started, sir, uh, tell us about yourself. Hey, so my name is Brian Horvath. Uh, I'm a lieutenant colonel in the United States Army, and I am currently the Oklahoma City Recruiting Battalion Commander, which gives us Army recruiting operations for the active duty in the reserve for all of Oklahoma, all of Arkansas, North Texas, uh, and Southern Kansas, about 207,000 square miles of terrain. Uh, but the coolest thing that's happened since I've been out here is uh, I was reminded that I'm at USA Wrestling. This is the center of gravity, man. It's right. so awesome to be in Oklahoma. So in the time that I've been out here, we had a chance to get on Coach Smith's uh, orange mats. Right. Uh, we've uh, So we've developed this idea at the battalion level that we're trying to do something called Operation Open Mat. So Operation Open Mat has a couple of lines of effort associated with it. Uh, we want to do utilizing the talent out of the Army WCAP program, uh, do little one-day pop-up clinics. Right. Uh, when we do our one-day pop-up clinics, we like to do a couple of things. We like to certainly show technique, do technique, probably have some live uh, live sparring and some matches and that sort of stuff. Uh, but we also spend time talking about mindset and attitude. Yeah. We want to talk about mindset and attitude because I think all of, all of the great things that happen in the high school wrestling room, the transition from high school and successful in high school to be successful collegiately and the transition to be successful collegiately to be successful at the senior level, it's a massive step. And I think sometimes that step, which really fundamental is the mindset and the attitude of the young athlete that's going to make that transition. So WCAP wrestlers who are successful at the senior level have had successful collegiate careers. Um, we spend time with our kids talking about mindset and attitude. So the one-day pop-up clinic uh, will coordinate with a high school wrestling coach. Uh, they've got something they can put together. We can get into the wrestling room on Saturday. We'll bring the WCAP folks down. Uh, we'll take folks from the high school. We'll take folks from the district. And we'll do that sort of technique and mindset uh, clinic. The next thing that we're working on is we're going to try to do it, and I don't think we're going to be able to get it done this summer, but next summer we're going to do a multi-day camp right. uh, that will be free to attend for juniors and seniors. Uh, same thing from the content for our athletes. It will be techniques, skills, that sort of stuff. Uh, can I take you know senior-level Greco-Roman techniques and pull some gripping and some hand-fighting techniques and incorporate that into my, my high school wrestling format and be successful with it? So interesting things like that. So in addition to the work for the kids, at the same time we've got the kids in the camp, we're also going to do coaches' sessions. And in the coaches' sessions, we want to try to equip our, our wrestling coaches with the following kind of skills or opportunities, right? How do I run a complicated high school wrestling practice? Right. I think the high school wrestling room is probably one of my most complicated wrestling rooms because by the time my seniors get around, especially my guys that might be college ready, I've got a pretty high level of skill. Then i got my freshmen who may not have any idea – that there's a difference between a single leg and a double leg. So how do I run a meaningful practice that allows each of my various skill sets to improve each day they come in the room? So how do I run a complicated high school wrestling program? There's a wonderful explosion of girls wrestling right now, uh, certainly in Oklahoma and Arkansas. How do I build and bolster my girls wrestling program at the high school level? Um, what do I do for my off-season strength and conditioning program so that my athletes come in ready, right? Uh, what do I do from a diet and conditioning perspective as I go through the season so that my athletes are healthy and they pick at states and districts and, and those sorts of things. So same thing, all of that stuff, because we'll bring in our resources. You come and participate in our stuff. It's free to attend. Um, and so we're trying to build those things. And then the final thing that we're doing, uh, we're in the procurement process to get some uh, some Army logoed wrestling mats, some mats that, you know, be all you can be, uh, 
right. army logos and that sort of stuff. So I'll some, I'll have three high school cut Resolite wrestling mats. Any of our high school wrestling coaches uh, trying to run a tournament. Uh, there was a flood in the wrestling room and we got dual meets this week. If somebody reaches out to us, I've got transportation and sanitation resources coming in with the package. I'll be able to facilitate high school wrestling with wrestling mats. If somebody needs my mats, we'll bring them out. Uh, we'll do that service for folks just as kind of a contribution to the community. So, and I think the final thing, the reason that Derek and I are sitting here talking today is one of the things that's happened is Rob Veloz and Coach Rao and the guys down at the Elgin Wrestling Club is we were able to get uh, involved this year in the Battle for Wichita, which was an awesome event with the kids, uh, kids from the smallest level, uh, boys and girls at the high school level, and then like some old dudes like in my age group getting out there and wrestling, yeah. uh, trying to answer the fundamental question that wrestling allows us to do, right? We shake hands and we set a timer and we find out who's best. Uh, and so that's what brought us here today, Derek. Is that a good enough start? That's a hell of a start, sir. Uh, just back. What's the? Can you explain WCAP? Okay, so the WCAP is the World Class Athlete Program that the United States Army has. Uh, so active duty reserve and guard members who have a particular skill uh, can participate in the WCAP program. What's most relevant for us is the WCAP wrestling program where I've got men's and women's wrestling. The men's team focuses on Greco-Roman, and the right. women's team focuses on international freestyle type type rules. Um, so that's an incredibly talented group of folks. Uh, that's that's WCAP and there's a wrestling program. There's also WCAP track. Um, and if you look at our WCAP track team, uh, they've got a bunch of world-class athletes at the 3,000 meter steeplechase and up. So they've got some 10K runners and some marathoners and some other things. They've got a couple of other uh, Olympic sports that are WCAP supported. So right. that athletes that are at that level uh, can be a soldier, serve in the army, but compete on the international stage in your particular skill set or sport. So, uh, once you join the military, if you have a, a skill like wrestling is your skill, how do you get involved once you're already in? Okay, so if, if I'm at that kind of a skill level, there's a likelihood that I'm I'm known. Right. Okay. Um, but let's say that I'm an unknown kid, but I've got that magical talent, and I work really, really hard. Once I get into my unit. Uh, there's a personnel transaction document called a 4187. I just need a 4187 from my command that allows me to go try out. And every once in a while, there'll be announcements that come through Army communication systems that say, hey, right. WCAP Wrestling is holding holding tryouts for eligible applicants, and you could get a chance to go compete at the, with the WCAP team. If you're a known wrestler, do you just have kind of like a career plan when you come in as far as sports goes? Or is it like... You know, MOS training and then. Okay, so so let's say that I'm I'm a guy that's coming in and I'm I'm basically an invited WCAP walk on. Right. Okay. Um, what I'll have to do is I'll have to go through an enlistment and right. I'll get assigned an MOS and I'll go to I'll go to basic training. And so as a soldier in the army, what I will retain is my basic MOS and my basic right. training. I'll then go out to WCAP. And that's a pretty tough wrestling room. So what I'll have to do is I'll have to maintain my spot on the roster, right? So either I'm a traveling competitor, I am a traveling competitor sparring partner, uh, right. or I'm simply in the pool. Okay, so I go now and I've got that kind of open competition. Uh, I'm, making, I'm making my spot and I make the travel team for the year. So I go out, I do the travel team, I'll wrestle Pan Ams, we'll go into, we'll go into Europe and Eastern Europe and we'll do, you know, do the events, we'll, we'll hit... Um, We'll hit Super X. We'll go out to Fargo. We'll do all those. We'll do all those sorts of things. So I'm at that echelon, and I'm on the team. At the end of that year, we'll go back and we'll assess kind of your progression as a wrestler and your position on the team. And then I'll have to take a month or so, or a couple of you know, a couple of months. We're like 15 days out of the month. 
I'm going back and I'm staying in tune with my MOS and my MOS requirements okay. because I'll get promoted in my MOS, but I'll compete in WCAP. Right. And so I have to be able to compete successfully, meaning I'm out there, I'm getting wins, right? I'm successful in the wrestling room. I've got a good attitude. I've got a good mindset. I'm a good partner, right? I, I manifest the leadership that's so necessary in wrestling. And so I continue to compete. I'll drop down and I'll touch my MOS. I'll be skilled in my MOS. And if at some point sort of my, my career has come to its termination, I've got the ability, depending on how I feel about the Army, to go back into my MOS and continue to work, to continue to get promoted and to serve as a soldier, or, or I simply get to the end of my enlistment contract, I'll go through an ETS, and then I go on to whatever comes next in life with you know uh, an awesome resume, a bunch of cool stories, like all the folks that I talked to from WCAP, um, you know, going in, going into the Ukraine and wrestling, going into Czechoslovakia and Romania and wrestling and doing all that stuff, uh, going sometimes into South America or going into Asia. Like it's just, it, it's an awesome opportunity to compete at that level, in fact, there's a there's an Oklahoma uh, kid that's up the wrestling now, Dustin Duffield. Okay. Uh, Dustin Dustin went from uh, I think a couple years at OSU to now transition to wrestling for the for the WCAT team and just came just came through what is it Super X trials? What about for coaching? Who coaches the WCAT team? Is that just military people as well? So there'll be some folks that would be a civilian that's appointed as a coach. Right. Uh, but a couple of times, what happens is is guys that have gone through and competed. Uh, Spencer Mango is one of the coaches right now. So Spencer, Spencer's competition days, you know, where he's at with, with his competition, has moved into a coaching position, and Spencer is still in the still in the military with an MOS and then serving in the coaching staff. So again, uh, for the judo team, Mike Proditus was one of the guys. So Mike was a black belt Olympic level judo practitioner. Uh, Mike was working in the army. He was a Civil Affairs, NCO, uh, did time in Civil Affairs, did a couple of deployments, was to continue to compete in Jiu-Jitsu, went back to WCAP, uh, did a final year of competition, was still in the Army, did uh, two years as a coach, and then retired, and now he's with USA Judo and and sort of still in the fold and still competing, but that was kind of his, his WCAP return and then his progression to coaching in WCAP. What's the, what's the age cutoff to join the military? So there's a bit of waiverability with it. Uh, we can look at somebody with a simple age waiver up to 40. Uh, and then if somebody has prior service, uh, prior service allows me to come in as old as 42, but I can also backdate based on my years of service. Is there a difference between officer and enlisted when it comes to age? Like, so if you're a... Uh if you have a degree already, you know. No, I think the only difference you'll see between officer and enlisted. So I can sign an enlistment contract when I'm 17 to, to grow up to be an NCO. Typically what will happen is I'll graduate high school and then I'll go off to my advanced individual trainings, my AIT session, and do that sort of stuff. My expectation for my officers is that you will have completed a college degree. Right. Okay, so so with the college degree completion, I'll just be a little bit older than my my seventeen year old. I'll I'll start my military career as a commissioned officer, 21, 22, 23, 24. Right. Um, so that's that's someone that just goes in, so goes like to um a commissioning source like West Point, uh, or somebody who completes a college degree and does a, a college option commissioning source. Don't forget that if I've got my young enlisted soldier, you know, 17, graduates from high school, gets in, there's opportunities to take college while you're in. And if I accrue 30 college credits, my enlisted service members are able to apply for an OCS contract or an ROTC contract where you could get a scholarship to go be an ROTC. You'll get commission. 
you'll still have all those years of service kind of in your in your resume, uh, or you can do an in-service uh, application into officer candidate school. So there's lots of ways to become an officer, but the fundamental question you ask is, what's the age difference? I've got a a bottom line, right? I've got to be 17 to come in. Right. And if, if you've got the credentials at 17, 18, you know, 19, 20, 21, you're eligible to start your career path. If you've got the academic credentials, you can start as an officer. That's amazing. I was talking to Coach Rao earlier, and he said, uh, he said, ask the colonel if I, if I can join the military right now. <laughs> and I was like, I'm sure he got some plan for you if you wanted to, you know, but him being 35, right? Yes. Having a bachelor's degree, uh, you know, state rep, uh, state championship coach, as a wrestling coach, what was something that you would be able to tell him? It's like, hey, these are your credentials. Here's a, a career path for you. We could literally sit down with Coach Rowell and, and do a college option OCS contract for him, which is the way that I got my commission. Now, I was slightly different because I was a prior service guy, but uh, 35 doesn't require an age waiver. He's eligible to start his military career at that point. He's got a college degree, and if what he wanted to do was pursue officer – we could do that. I think Cody's kind of a tough guy, right? He's got that wrestling background. Another option for him would be an 18 x-ray contract, which means he would go in, he would go right to Fort Brad, North Carolina, sorry, Fort Liberty, because they, they changed the name on us, go to Fort Liberty, and he would drop into the Special Forces pipeline. He would do a basic training, and then he would start to work on uh, the Q qualification course, prep course, and then we'd go into the Q course, and he could go off and serve as a SF guy. Tim Kennedy went through a path yep. like that after his college. 100%. Get, is, is there any more you can talk about the 18 X-ray program? Like as far as like job opportunities, like medics or anything like that? Okay. I, think it's a, I think it's a good opportunity for people if they wanted to get involved with the Q course is why I was asking. Okay, so, it, it, so if it, I'm in that 17, 18, I just came out of high school and I'm like, man, that sounds cool. I want to do that, right? I like that idea of the tip of the spear. I can do free fall parachute operations like yeah you can do all that stuff okay so I'll, I'll link up with a recruiter and i'll say i'm interested in the 18x-ray program you'll have to take an asvab and i need a couple of qualifying scores for the for the asvab that will make you eligible for 18x-ray uh, i have to be willing to jump out of aircraft uh, and then so my recruiting nco will sit down with that young kid and they'll start to build out an 18x-ray contract i need you to get down to meps and get you physically qualified so i've got the i've got the intellect I've got the aptitude and the attitude to do that sort of stuff. Um, and I'm eligible to compete for the 18 x-ray contract. Once I get the 18 x-ray contract, I'll become a future soldier waiting for my ship date. My recruiting NCO should be working with you because you're going to go through that sort of Q course pipeline. Hey, what am I doing? Uh, let's start doing a little bit of ruck marching so that my feet get toughened up so I can carry, carry a load kind of a thing. And so my 18 x-ray will then go through that process, ship, You'll do the basic training requirement, but you'll do it at the Special Warfare Center at Fort Liberty. Uh, and then I'll drop down into selection. If I complete selection, I'll be eligible to go to the Q course. Now, you were talking about 18 Delta. So 18 Delta is the SF medic. I've right. got an SF weapons sergeant. I've got an SF communications sergeant. I've got SF intel sergeant. And then I've just got the straight line SF, SF guy. As you go through the Q course and depending on your aptitude and your qualifications, you'll do additional classes and sort of like cassettes of instruction uh, that begin to qualify you for those things. So we just visited Fort Liberty with some uh, for an educators tour and we actually went into the the, the SOM TC, the medical training facility with the SF guys and got to see all kind of the, the cool stuff. Uh, that's a very detailed program that has like 36 weeks of additional uh, medical training that's intensive in 
you know, your foundation, right? How do I read charts and understand the languages? Uh, but how do I deal with trauma, right? Like in that moment, the role of the 18 Delta is to go out with the team. And if anybody gets hurt or they they encounter, you know, villagers in a, in, a, in a little village in the community and they need assistance with stuff, they're going to provide that medical support. Uh, but really the fundamental role, right? If somebody gets injured on the team, because it's a 12-man team that's out there in the middle of nowhere that needs to be able to accomplish the mission. The medic is the one that gets the guys, gets them fixed, gets them repaired, gets in the medical treatment. So the, the question, like, so 18 Delta and the various things in SF, as I'm going through the qualification course, so the long-form course, guys will start to branch out and land in their MOSs based on interest and aptitude to be successful in that particular uh, category of SF soldier. You said, uh, you said something about the language. Uh, so basically, in, in the 18 series, you got to learn language, correct? So everybody that falls under the special operations umbrella is going to be required to maintain language proficiency. So if you become an SF guy, 18 series, or a civil affairs guy, 38 series, or a, a PSYOP person, uh, each of those three MOSs in the military, military occupational specialty, so those three job categories, Everybody that's in those job categories, officer and enlisted, must maintain a passing language score for the entirety of your time in that field. So, um, number one, what's your job? Uh, what do you do for the military? And how did you get involved with that? Okay, so I did a college option contract, which means when I went to the recruiting office, I already had a college degree, and so I went directly to officer candidate school. I was a prior service Marine and my break in service was long enough that what I had the opportunity to do in my military career is go to boot camp at Paris Island in basic <laughs> training at Fort Benning, Georgia. So I go to I go to basic training at Fort Benning, Georgia, and then as soon as we were done with the basic training, basically I got on the bus and I went over to the officer candidate school, which is also housed at Fort Benning, Georgia, and I did OCS. As I was going through OCS, there was some shuffling with the officer branches, and what I wound up becoming was an armor officer. So I went from Fort Benning, Georgia to Fort Knox, Kentucky to train up as an armor officer. Upon graduation from the armor school at Fort Knox, Kentucky, uh, I got an opportunity to stay at Fort Knox for about 45 more days and I went to the scout leaders course, um, which talks about the 19 Delta career field and you know the over the horizon reconnaissance and some other cool stuff as scouts. So I come out of Fort Knox and I go to my first duty station, which was 134 Armor at Fort Riley, Kansas. Uh, and we were probably 38 days before we went into a combat rotation in Iraq. So I'm trained at tank school. I get to 134 Armor, which is a heavy armor battalion. So if, it, you know, on an ordinary Wednesday afternoon in the motor pool, we've got 64 tanks assigned to the battalion. So there's tanks everywhere. So we get to Iraq and they're talking about the mission and we were divided up into platoons that had tanks, platoons that had Bradleys and platoons that had Humvees. Uh, tanks would do tank missions, Bradley would do kind of a hybrid mission, and Humvees would enter and clear buildings. So they looked at me and they said, well, Horvath's a Marine, so he'll enter and clear buildings. So I go to Iraq and I drop into the Humvee platoon. I never saw a tank. <laughs> but we had our building, we had our team, and we were kind of a, a, a platoon task force. So I had an interpreter that was attached to us, I had a medic that was attached to us. And there were some reserve PSYOP guys that lived in our building and the PSYOP team was attached to us. These were the coolest dudes in the world. 
they had their own interpreter. He was a he was a guy that had spent a lot of time in CENTCOM uh, doing various missions and stuff. So fluent speaker, interesting guy, interesting backstory. And the SIOP guys were great. And I was thinking to myself, man, that's a cool MOS. What is that? I sort of like the scout stuff. Uh, got back from Iraq. I had a scout platoon. Got to do some cool things. But the United States Army at that time, so we got back from Iraq, it's about 2003, 2004, and the Army said that the PSYOP capability, psychological operations, uh, had fulfilled such a critical role in the, you know, the combat operations going on in Afghanistan and Iraq that uh, they wanted to build more PSYOP folks. So I applied for PSYOP through a Department of the Army Selection Board, and I got picked up for psychological operations. So I came out of 134 Armor, I went down to Fort Benning, Georgia to do inner, uh, sorry, captain's career course. So the Army, so as you go through your Army career, if you're an officer, you'll drop out and do Army education at multiple time points. Right. So that was the captain's career course. So I'm down at Fort Benning, Georgia. I'm down with all the infantry guys uh, running around the woods and doing some cool stuff. And we get the approval. I'm transitioning to psychological operations. The start date for psychological operations kind of slid off into the future, and I had an additional four months down at Fort Benning, Georgia. So I graduated from the infantry captain's career course, and I had the opportunity uh, to work in the Modern Army Combatives Fight House with Matt Larson. Okay. So I went and spent four months down there. I went through Army Combatives training level one, level two, level three, and level four. And by the time we had gotten to level four, it was a four-week course that was just all fighting skills. So doing boxing matches, doing Muay Thai matches, uh, lots of jujitsu, ground fighting type stuff. And so on my way into psychological operations, I picked up my Modern Army Combatives level four Combatives Instructor Master Instructor Certificate. And then we dropped into Fort Bragg. When we got into Fort Bragg, we went up doing more training. So there was about a two-year PSYOP training pipeline. And Derek had had this like, question like, hey, the language training. So the two-year pipeline, when we got to Fort Bragg at the time, Fort Liberty now for the PSYOP pipeline, uh, we did the PSYOP qualification course. Uh, we did the PSYOP uh, doctrine and policy course, and then we went into language. And so the Army trained me in Tagalog, which is one of the languages that comes out of the Philippines. Language training. Occasionally doing airborne operations because somewhere in there I'd also uh, finished up the Army Airborne Airborne Training School. And so now I'm Tagalog trained and I start doing missions in PSYOP. And through the years in PSYOP, I had um, I had an operational team in Thailand. I had a, I had an, a, a liaison officer position, an LNO position uh, in the Kingdom of Bahrain with U.S. NAVSEND. Uh, did those opportunities. I came out. Again, for a school opportunity, so I got a master's degree from the Naval Postgraduate School in Low Intensity and Special Operations Conflict. Uh, after Naval Postgraduate School, I did some of my jobs as a major and then qualified for battalion command. So I had a SIOP battalion, and I'm out here now in a second battalion command as the as a USAREC battalion commander. That's how we met the team down here in Elgin. That's how we got involved in wrestling in Oklahoma, um, and that's kind of how we got to this point in my life. There's, uh, even when, even when I was in, there was an evolution in like combatives, right? So when I went through uh, combat, I, I I made it through combatives two. When I went through combatives one, when I went through combatives two, I had to learn stuff that then they had to learn in combatives level one. Is there is that still evolving the same way? So they, so they've shortened the course a little bit, and the evolution that they they have tried to make back through the modern army combatives program is with all of the years of feedback. 
So looking at looking at lots of things to get feedback on the modern army combatives program. Certainly MMA, right? Like what's going on in the UFC? What is it that's allowing people to close with the enemy and win, right? What's going on in Sambo? Is there something interesting that's coming out of karate? Mm. So looking at all of that stuff for the evolution of, of technique. But we look in the Modern Army Combatives Program at the evolution of technique, not through how do I win a jiu-jitsu, sport jiu-jitsu points match where I can, you know, I can I can pull guard and sweep and I just I just won one on one on points. But years of feedback from the combat theater and what's working and what do we need it for? Because the Modern Army Combatives Program needs to solve the following situation. If we sit upon the continuum of violence and we look at this idea that I may encounter opposition forces or civilians on the battlefield or, or, or local, you know, the local population. What does a soldier need to do at the point of transition between compliance to non-compliance and how do we correctly apply an escalation of violence right. that allows us to do what is necessary to solve the situation? It doesn't unnecessarily get to lethality because sometimes that's not what I need, Right. Right. But it does not preclude the escalation to lethality if the situation demands that our soldiers are in danger and we need to save the lives of our, of our soldiers. So now, how has modern army combatives evolved in that, that? So some of the things that you have to do to, to complete the test have changed. Um, and incorporation back into the modern army combatives program of spending time as you go through the curriculum where I'm going to put all of my kit on, I'm going to put my Kevlar on, I'm going to have a weapon because all of a sudden my combat engagement changes, right? So if you think about my combat sports and we go from wrestling, I'm not allowed to grab the clothing. Then when we transition to judo and jujitsu, almost everything that I do is drawn by or driven by the clothing that I'm grabbing. If we go in the other direction further away, if I'm doing Greco-Roman wrestling, now I can't touch the legs. Okay, so as we think about the ideas and those things, and we think about the problem-solving things that are associated with each of those sports, now as we transition into the modern army combatives programs and what it must be able to do in real-life situations and on the battlefield, none of those restrictions exist. I've got all of these things on me. I probably have a weapon or multiple weapons that are in my reach. And so now modern army combative system talks about the idea of, as I address the situation, How do I coordinate my movements with my battle buddy? And how do I utilize my movements so that I have maximum access to my tools that are on my kit? But if you are my bad guy, you don't get any of my tools, right? Right. Right. So sometimes if a guy, and I'm I'm pointing to my chest here, guys think it looks cool because Rambo did it to put a knife right on my chest. Well, the problem with that is if a dude tackles me, his hands can probably get to a knife that I've got positioned on my chest faster than I can. So that's not where I am from a tactical perspective going to place a knife. Right. Um, and so the modern army combatives is now doing a much better job of dealing with that. So I went through in, I went through in 2004 and our head instructor was Troy Thomas. Troy Thomas has now got uh, Fort Collins BJJ. He's a black belt under uh, – uh, Jacques-Ray Cavalcante, if I'm still doing the history correctly, uh, we did a ton of jujitsu. 
So when I went home from my level two class, my life, my wife was like, "What are you doing?" I'd have handprints all over me, <laughs> breast burns on my neck because we right. did we did like two days of chokes. Um, so now what it is is because the timeline to teach the curriculum is kind of down. So so all the way through it, level one still remains a week, but my I've got an instructor course that is two weeks, and then a master's course is an additional two weeks, and that allows you to train and certify throughout the totality of the program. But I did level one, level two, level three. And then a level four. So I did I did one week, I did two weeks, I did four weeks, and I did four weeks. So I did a, a much longer program in the evolution. So what's the evolution? How do we equip a soldier through a unit training program as efficiently as possible? Because my soldiers have to train on lots of things to deal with the continuum of violence. But to deal with the continuum of violence with the additional complication of I'll probably have a battle buddy. And I want to be able to more effectively utilize my tools than an opposition combatant could use my tools against me. And so we talk about those things, right? right. Uh, so if we're in a truly lethal situation, the worst thing that I can have happen is my battle buddy shoots me because we don't have tactical awareness of where the body positions are and those sorts of things. So modern army combatants are trying to solve all of those things. And then somewhere in the kernel of it, right? Because we talked earlier today about wrestling and why wrestling is so cool, right? We set the timer and we're going to figure out who's best. Way back to the godfather of modern army combatants, Matt Larson. Matt always talked about this idea that to motivate participation at the unit level, we should occasionally ask the cool question, who's the best fighter in the battalion? And so what's come back into the modern army combatants program is now the Lacerda Cup which used to be the All-Army Combatives Tournament. So the Lacerda Cup brings in teams from all over the Army. Uh, you drop into weight classes to build your team. But in addition to a combatives tournament, you also have to fire weapons, do land nav, uh, do some Kaziback and some other sort of warrior task and battle drill type skills. So at the end of the Lacerda Cup, the question that we're asking is, who are the best warriors? Not just who are the best cage fighters, and so there's an evolution in the system that that so every year. So as we talk about a kid, right, that's, hey, I'm a, I'm a pretty good high school wrestler, but I have, it's hard to wrestle collegiately now just because of the deterioration of programs. Um, but what do I want to do? Maybe the Army interests me. Uh, maybe I'm not quite good enough for WCAP, but I'm a quality wrestler, right? I've got that combat, or, combat sport background. Right. Uh, your unit's probably putting together a team for the Lacerda Cup, and if you're good enough, you can go compete uh, – TDY on the Lacerda Cup and represent your unit and your team on a yearly basis, which I think is an absolutely fantastic event that the guys have put together now uh, for the progression of the Modern Army Combatives program. We had talked uh, at the football field for the Battle of Wichita. Is that what you competed in, sir? Yeah, so in 2014, um, I did the All-Army Combatives Tournament. It was hosted that year uh, at Fort Liberty. Uh, I fought at 155, uh, and I wound up getting uh, third place uh, winning a cage match. Uh, that was my amateur MMA debut. So you still out there battling now, huh? Uh, well, I'm, so now I'm a rusty brown belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu these days. The last time I rolled, um, I'm up in Oklahoma City, so we got Lovato Jr.'s BJJ is up there. Like That's a phenomenal uh, studio and facility. So I've rolled, I've rolled a couple times with the guys up at Lovato's. And then we got a couple guys in the unit that roll. So, so one of these days we'll do a unit PT session we'll do. Right. Beat the old man, and I'll literally get on the ground and let guys – you said you did that yesterday, sir? Uh, so so at the unit level, we're, we're doing a little virtual PT program where each a month, it, it, once a month at the battalion headquarters, I pick the battalion headquarters PT event. 
Right. And then what we do is we'll announce that kind of socially. We'll put a link out. We'll run it on my on my Instagram feed kind of stuff. Um, we'll do things that either have kind of a CrossFit-like feel with a time or an event score. And I'll post my time and I'll give shouts out to folks that beat me if if uh, anybody beats me. So we did a Army birthday theme thing yesterday. Uh, we did six rounds of 14 reps of six exercises. So you had to do push-ups, uh, straight leg body twists, uh, burpees, butterfly sit-ups, lunges, and one more thing, but six rounds of 14 reps. And then you had to run uh, 1,775 yards, which is like six yards shy of a mile. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so we did that yesterday. A couple of guys beat me, and then we're doing training again uh, next week down here at Fort Sill, down in the beautiful Lawton area. We're going to get out and do that workout again with my 79 Romeos. So uh, a couple questions here. Number one, how old is the old man? And number two is, what, what do you do? What's something you've done to be proactive uh, to maintain your health throughout the years? Maybe some uh, up-and-coming officer, up-and-coming soldier could pay more attention to. So I turned 52 in March. I think sometimes, because I look at my athletic career, so I, I ran cross-country, I wrestled, and I pole vaulted in high school. Uh, I wound up getting injured every year in wrestling, and I only the only time I finished the high school wrestling season was my, my freshman year. Uh, I went from high school high school wrestling to college, college into the Marine Corps. Uh, in the Marine Corps, there was like a couple of pop-up tournaments. I went and wrestled in the Marine Corps. Uh, came out of the Marine Corps. I played soccer for a while. So we, we get back around. So what's going on? What's really the evolution? I think the evolution comes down to this. In the last 45 days, I've had one cigar and I've had no alcohol. I take very seriously diet, rest, and exercise. I try to watch what I eat. And I, in the last couple of years, the last five years, one of the things that I ran into was the Thor 3 program or the U.S. Special Operations Command Human Performance Program. And so under the Thor 3 program, one of the, one of the things that I wound up getting is I, I worked out in an athletic facility where I had a strength coach, a physical therapist, and a dietitian. And it was through that that we started to look at things like load maintenance. We started to talk about what's the workout progression. We started to talk about, you know, what are you doing for growth and development? And so I think one of the things that's out there that we're trying to do is I don't know if I'll ever run a sub 50 quarter mile again, which I did in 1987. But I got a 5K on the calendar. So 4th of July, I'm going to be up in Tulsa. We're going to run the Firecracker 5K. Uh, we put the Beat the Old Man events on the calendar. Uh, my son and I are going to complete the Spartan Trifecta this year. It'll be his first trifecta. So in September for his birthday, I'll go home. We'll do a sprint. Uh, and then in November, we'll do the Beast and we'll close, out, we'll close out his trifecta for the year. So how do we do it? What's the thing? I think you have to put tangible goals on the calendar. Hey, this is what I'm going to do, and this is what I'm going to get it done by. I think you have to be proactive in what it is that you do from your diet, rest, and exercise perspective. And I think that all the things in life that are distractions, you, you've got to find ways to reduce them and eliminate them so that they're not they're not in your life. So I try to work on all of those aspects of, of health, and then I try to get a little bit of, a little bit of courage, and I'll throw stuff out there. I'll put times out there, and some of the young guys scuff me up pretty bad. And uh, I like to put burpees in there because that seems to make everybody upset by doing workouts that have burpees in them. And we just try to keep kind of kind of maintaining, right? So goals, a plan to obtain the goals, and then the discipline and the consistency to do the little elements of the goals that allow me to get there. I think 
right? So these opportunities, how I feel, what I'm able to do at 52, I think on the back end of my military time, I'd love to be in a high school wrestling room coaching where I take those opportunities to talk to those kids about, hey, man, the decisions that you make now will affect your life in the future, which, again, is a weird thing for 17-year-olds, right? Like when we were 17 and I thought about 32, like that was an alien age concept that was so far off in the distance, it was almost science fiction to me. Well, now as I sit here at 52 and I think about it, so what's my lifelong fitness goal? I want to be walking my last day on earth. So what do we do to do that, right? So push the body, but take care of it. And so the same thing when I'm 16, 17, 18, I'm trying to get through that grind of that high school wrestling season, right? How do I make smart decisions throughout the week, right? How do I, how do I make disciplined decisions with my diet so that my weight maintenance is a, is a beneficial process for me where I outperform somebody who's doing the same Right. weight maintenance that I'm doing. Um, and I'd love to give that back to the community and share with kids and, 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 and help people. You know, if, if what I'm doing and it's like, man, that guy's 52 and he's doing that stuff and that inspires someone, then awesome. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep doing it. 100%, sir. Sorry about this weather, sir. I didn't know I'm getting like this. Ain't nothing I can do about it. <laughs> no, that's all right, man. If, 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 if there's a little bit of real life in this, in this podcast, uh, that means maybe folks will trust what we're saying a little bit more. 100%. So one of the the things that uh, I always like to talk about is like mental mindset, mental toughness, and stuff like that. Can you explain, or maybe an experience that you know, maybe something that happened in wrestling was able to prepare you mentally for something that happened in the future? I don't think I realized because I graduated high school in nineteen eighty eight. I was seventeen. I don't think I realized what was occurring in the wrestling room. And what it was doing for me for for later life. So one of the things that I pulled from the wrestling room that I do, uh, so training for a cage fight, uh, I was a licensed second in the state of North Carolina. So I got a bunch of amateur cage fighters who've done done cage fights for me. So one of the things that I like to do from the train up is we call the shark tank, which I absolutely took from the high school wrestling room. And so if we talk about jujitsu, we talk about MMA, right? Where what are my trouble positions? Well, somebody's on top of me. So I like to take guys, either myself or one of my folks that's training, and I'm going to put you in a trouble position. So you're mounted where I've got a line of folks, like eight or 10 guys that rotate in, where what we're doing is if somebody transitions the position or somebody gets submitted, the next guy comes in. The job of the guys in line is to smoke, to to just work the dog shit out of the guy that's on, on, on the mat, that's in the, in the shark tank to, to, to push. And so what are we looking for in that situation, right? Because at the end of the 20 minutes where I've got an unfair position, where I've got fresh guys constantly rotating in, just ready to jump on me, we used to do it with the bottom man has to get up, right? Right. right? And so somebody always rotates in on the top and the goal is to stand up and escape, stand up and escape. And if that guy breaks you down flat or if that guy turns you, the next guy's coming in. You've got to stay in the shark tank and you've got to go. Here's what's so beautiful about that and here's what's so tough about that. Somewhere in that 20 minutes, your mind is going to look at the clock. Somewhere in that 20 minutes, your mind is going to try to, try to quit. And somewhere in it, your body is going to be out of uh, top-line carbohydrates. And so a little bit of muscular strength is going to, going to go away. And so now, because in any situation in a combat environment, speed, strength, or technique, I can use that to solve the situation. When I get into the depths of the shark tank, I'm absolutely exhausted. And I can't get out if I don't win. 
I've got to go somewhere in there. I've got to rely on my technique. I've got to rely on my training. I've got to find that burst of speed. I've got to find that one more rep and I've got to be successful. So why is that valuable? Because sometimes you can't be successful when you think you can't be. Sometimes you can be strong when you think you are at your weakest moment. Sometimes you can be fast when you think you have no speed left. And the only way that we train and learn to be successful in that is I've got to get you into stress then I've got to have you succeed in that stress. And now as I know that, right, so now I've got a new depth that I can go through. So what we try to do in the wrestling room or what we try to do in life is we try to find these opportunities where I can push myself, right, where I can have that micro moment of discipline, yes or no, and I can succeed. And now I can go a little bit deeper. And now I can go a little bit deeper. And so somewhere in that, right, Like the truly best folks simply galvanize this idea that it doesn't matter. I'm going to be victorious in this situation. And guys find ways to be able to do that. But for you as the individual to go through that growth as an athlete or to go through that growth as a competitor, is you get a little bit deeper into, I can handle this fear for a moment. I can handle this doubt for a moment. And I can find a way to be successful. And so I think that idea, right? So all that time back then when I didn't know that that was happening to me. It's those things in life that prepare us to be who we are today. It's those things in life that prepare us to be successful. It's those moments of struggle where we find a way to succeed. And in those moments of struggle where we can't find a way to succeed, it's that's when we rely upon the team or the coach or the guys that are in the wrestling room with me to talk me how, how they did it. I can find somebody who was successful and I can emulate those techniques and those capabilities. And I have that opportunity for connect sort of that continued growth, right? If all I do every day is take one step, at the end of a four-year wrestling career, you know how many steps you're going to have taken. You know where you're going to have gotten to. And so I think that belief that if I can do the work, I can take the benefits and I can improve is one of the most powerful things that comes out of the wrestling room. And I think I try to incorporate that into my life as best as I can. But if we're being honest, there are those times, there are those moments where you make that sort of failed decision and you just got to go back. I, I, I take notes. I put stuff in a journal and log. You got you to go back. You got to look at the performance. And if you miss on a workout, table it, take the notes, check the diet going into it and go back and do it again. And go back and do it again until you can succeed in that and succeed in that moment. And those little increments of success just teach you that every time you put forth the effort, every time you believe in yourself, Every time you've grooved and worked your technique so that you can rely upon it, you have the opportunity to rely upon it and be successful. So uh, when you was coming up in the military, uh, you know, as a young officer, what's the first ass chewing you took and why? So when it is some, anytime somebody tells you about the old days, always take it with a grain. <laughs> always take it with a grain of salt that it, that it may not be. All right. So so in the army, one of the one of the growth and developmental things that happens is like all all the lieutenants have no army experience, right? You're the commissioned officer with some expectations and roles, but you know about as much of the tank as the private that just showed up at at the unit. Right. Okay, so I came in as a prior service guy. I came in as a college option guy. I was a little bit older. I was an OCS graduate. So in my first unit at 134 Armor, with all the kind of the lieutenants running around, like sometimes first sergeants will pull lieutenants aside and be like, hey, sir, I'm going to need you to adjust your azimuth. I didn't have many of those moments. Like I, so I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, get, I didn't get asked chewings that way. 
the most interesting ha- thing that happened one time is I had a company commander because I was complaining about something. And he said, well, what does the STRAC say? And I said, know what the acronym stands for. It's like the... It's like the strategic table, uh, weapons allocations and stuff. And so what the STRAC tells you, and I was a scout platoon leader at the time, is it says what you get for training resources for your platoon level. So company commander, well, Lieutenant Horvath, you don't know what the STRAC says. And so I went and grabbed the STRAC and started reading it. And what happened when I got to the bottom of the STRAC was I found out that scout platoons in a heavy armor battalion get 1,400 sticks of C4 a year. So the next thing that we did was we went over to the engineering battalion and we started doing the tests and the certifications so that we could sign for the unlimited range on Fort Riley. And so after that little sort of ass chewing, as it were, right, that uncomfortable moment where somebody who was more senior than me told me to go and do something. We got to the back end of that and we went down and we drew all 1,400 sticks of our C4. And when you draw your entire allotment of the year of C4, you get some other cool things like a kilometer of dead cord, a kilometer of timing fuses. So my scout platoon and the scout platoon from uh, two, three, four went out and just blew stuff up all day. And so I guess if we're going to talk lessons, right? So what do we get from the wrestling room or what happens if somebody chews your ass? That's an uncomfortable situation every time that it happens. But if you take a little bit of personal courage and you hold your breath and you keep your mouth shut and you listen, there's probably something valuable that's in there because more often than not, the person that's chewing your ass is older than you, senior than you, possibly has been standing in the position that you've been standing before. And it's not necessarily personal, right? It's not an attack on you, the human being. It's an attack on your current level of performance. And they care, too. Yeah. That's exactly where I was going with that, sir. You hit the nail on the head right there. Yeah, so listen, if, if, if Coach comes out and blows the whistle and says, not fast enough, because folks are dragging on bear crawls, we could always do bear crawls again. Yeah. <laughs> you was talking to me a little bit last time at the football field about your old high school coach and uh, some of the things he did. Can you share any of those experiences? So again, right, so, so take with a grain of salt the memories of the old guys. But I, I've, I've got this fondness. Uh, so Christmas break was in the midst of wrestling season, and we had, we had Christmas break because the Christmas tournament, like the Christmas tournament was like 15 December that, that weekend. And so now we're on where school's kind of shut down. The wrestling season's in season because you come back after the first year and it's quick. By the time you've gotten to February, maybe three more dual meets and then it's districts. Uh, so we did two a days in December back during Christmas time. And, and I, we, I remember going in the morning on the mats and, and we had the old mats. So we had, we had like two piece mats or this gigantic thing or one piece mats that you had to roll up and it took the entire wrestling team to move the thing back into the closet. Yeah. But it was competition side. It had the one big circle, but if you flipped it over, it was practice side. It had nine circles on it. And we, we, we used to do things where like it was like hold the circle or king of the circle or we, we would roll in them circles until there was like just a puddle of sweat in it. Yeah. And it was 88, so we didn't care too much about MRSA. So we would just leave at, you know, 1130 in the morning. We'd come back at, at 1400 in the afternoon. The circles would be dry and it would be time to swamp them again. And I think as you did those moments at those times, that was incredibly developmental Right, because you'd be tired when you come back for the second session. So, so again, how am I going to solve this problem? Right, is it, it? Can I? Can I? Can I still be fast, or do I need superior technique? 
And certainly at a high school time, right? Because at some point we'll get to, you know, by the time you're on the international scale, if you're not truly world-class and outstanding from a technique, speed, strength, uh, cardiovascular endurance perspective, you're going to have incredible trouble on on the mats. But in my young developmental time, I, I, I don't so much have the totality of it which means in that moment, right, if I can push my opponent, if I'm stronger than my opponent, but he's faster than me, can I get to a strength position so that I can be successful? If my opponent's stronger than me, can I utilize technique to nullify some of his strengths so that I can be successful? It's You've just got to spend the time on the mat, and two days was such a beautiful time where we were just spending time on the mats. Um, the other cool training thing that I did, now this was a jujitsu thing and not a wrestling thing. Okay. Um, Special operations was allowed to do LASIK surgery for guys. So I got authorized to get LASIK surgery, which is awesome because I was always, I had glasses for forever. Um, so I, I, I'm approved to get LASIK surgery. I'm doing jujitsu sometimes twice a day, but we had like a, like a, like a two hour morning session and I got authorized for LASIK. I don't want LASIK to get disrupted. So I did six months of jujitsu with a blindfold on. I did six months of jujitsu with a blindfold on and a couple of really interesting things sort of happened. And then after the surgery, I did, I did two more months. So it was a total of eight months of just every time I rolled, I had a blindfold on. What begins to develop if you do that training, and I think you can incorporate it into the high school and even the collegiate wrestling room occasionally. So sometimes guys will do lights out sessions and other things like, like right. that. If my body can feel the position and my body can feel the evolution or the change in the position without me having to see it, my reactions get faster. The other thing that happens if I start to wrestle with the blindfold on is I no longer, I no longer understand the position because of the orientation of my feet to the wrestling mat or my feet to the walls or my feet to the room. And all of a sudden now, if I'm in the position, but the position is upside down because sometimes I'm rolling with a blindfold and now all I know is the connection to the my other competitor, right? Like, how do I feel? What's the body situation? What's going on? Where am I being touched? I get a better sense of my orientation to my opponent. And so I get into the situation where it doesn't matter if I'm upside down, right? It doesn't matter if the situation has changed. It also helps me a little bit with... Um, I want to be able to shoot my single leg to both sides. I'm probably going to have a preferential side. Blindfolded begins to also improve my little bit of my ability to get from one side to the other side as well. So shark tanks, lots of time in trouble positions. So I begin to develop my ability to be resistant to difficulty. Uh, sometimes so that I get that body sense, right? That, that corporal sense of where I am, what's the positional space. Uh, sometimes rolling with a blindfold is beneficial as well. So, uh, last question I have, and probably one of the most important questions for me personally. Growing up, I grew up without a steady father figure, you know what I mean? And I see that a lot in schools now, because I, I do middle school detention, and when kids come in, they really don't have the a good north, somebody to look up to. Me growing up, you know, was always my coaches. That's why I really believe coaching is, a, is very important in this world, not only for sports, but for mentorship, right? And uh, when I got in the military, I had a and she told me one time, find a mentor. That's what I did. So some, some great guys I looked up to. The very first guy that you know that I looked up to was his name, Sir Forrest. Start first class drought. I said again, that's about tear up. His name was Start first class drought. He was my detachment. 
detachment sergeant at the time, and uh, he had a really good positive impact on me in the military, and he was at the beginning of my career too. So I was able to take that and carry it out through the, my career and look up to people. So by saying that, you coming up in the military, can you talk about any of your mentors, somebody that guided you in the right direction, or somebody that's, I need to be like that guy? I think back to Coach Joe Corso, and my Joe Corso was not the Sunkiss Kids Joe Corso, so please don't uh, think I'm misquoting folks. Uh, coach Corso was our cross-country coach. He was also our wrestling coach for a number of, of the years. And it was always a do it again until you do it you do it right. So that was the foundation in, in high school. Um, I think of another person that was important in my life, and I don't want to mess the name up, but it was Dr. Kuhn, who was the genetics professor at the University of Central Florida. So I'm in genetics class. There's 400 students in genetics class. We had class and we had a lab. I was doing pretty good in the, I was doing pretty good in the class. And he bopped into the hallway one day and he said, hey, what are you doing after graduation? I said, oh, I'm trying to go to grad school. He says, all right, get on my calendar and come and see me. And the purpose of him talking to me in that moment, he says, let me see your graduate school application. I laid my stuff out and he said, that's a nice letter of recommendation, but it's irrelevant for based on what you're doing. And, and, and Kuhn was the genetics professor at the University of Central Florida. Uh, he was the long, he was a tenured professor, but he was also the longest standing um, consistent recipient of NIH and NSF grants. He had like 22 straight years of, of grant allocations for his, his research projects. Um, he picked me out of a crowd, pulled me aside. He looked at what I was doing, told me what was right and told me what was wrong and gave me a leg up and gave me some assistance. Uh, the next person was Glenn Cunningham. I was talking to Glenn Cunningham. He was the biochemistry professor at the University of Central Florida. And I reached out to him for assistance. Um, I said, hey, um, I'm applying for graduate school and some of the grad schools are asking for the GRE 2. As I looked at the GRE 2 options, it looked like the biochemistry GRE 2 was my best option. I said, can I get some tutoring to take the GRE 2? He said, well, the problem is, is I can give you some tutoring. He said, but that's a tough test. He said, most of the curriculum is in biochemistry too. He says, let me ask you a question. He says, let's say I train you up. Can you score high enough on the GRE 2 that it will help you get into the graduate program you want to get into? I said, no, probably not. Not, not a high enough of a score. He said, because it's a tough course, you don't have all of the curriculum. He said, could you get a low enough of a score that it would preclude you from getting into the school you want to get into? I said, yeah, that's a possibility. He says, yeah, I just wouldn't take the test. He goes, I know you can't get a refund. He says, I, I would take that money. Okay, so what happened from those mentors? There's a couple of things. One, uh, one of them I had asked for assistance. I didn't get the answer that I wanted but I got the answer that I needed. And then the other one, it was an adult that found me and gave me a hand. So the thing that we're talking about in this, right? So what's the role of the individual? I think the role of the individual is you've got to rip yourself out of comfort, right? I'm not smart enough to succeed. I'm not a good enough wrestler to make it to state. Well, those just wind up being excuses that may or may not be accurate, but by saying them aloud or feeling them internally, you're going to make them become accurate. I'm not good enough to make it to states. 
And then I don't do the little things that would make me get there. And then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I have to be willing to get out of my comfort zone. And sometimes one of the hardest things to do is to ask for help. But then if I'm going to be willing to ask for help, because it's tough sometimes to be honest with people, but if somebody has the courage to give you the honest feedback on what it is that you need to do better or you need to do different, you have to have the willingness to continue to go into the shark tank to take that advice and utilize it to get yourself better. So for the individuals that are out there and the guys on on, on Derek's podcast that are going to pick this up, if, if you don't know what to do about a situation that you're in in your life, and it, you've got to reach out to someone to ask. But for the coaches out there, for the adults that are out there that, that, that interact with kids and in this world, and you're doing all these things, and you got all these obligations, there's a great book by a guy named Dr. John Hodge called Mind in the Gap that talks about the unbelievable power of what one adult can do in one child's life if you reach out and provide some assistance. And the assistance that's needed, I think, today more than ever is not the the assistance of validating the excuses, but it's the assistance of giving children clear standards and high expectations and having the discipline, the consistency, and the courage to maintain the standard and to reemphasize the expectations. And I think if you do that for a child, and it doesn't matter what background they come from, and as Derek was talking about not having a father in the household, all of those things are difficult and they're challenges. But if we give those kids clear standards and high expectations, every one of them will meet the standards and exceed the expectations. So if you need help, reach out. If you see somebody that needs assistance, have the courage to give them the recommendations and the advice that's going to make them better And if we can stop making excuses for ourselves and if we as adults can stop looking at our kids and our athletes and validating their excuses, everybody's going to get better. And we make this world a better place by doing that thing that we do in those classrooms and in those uh, sports teams rooms as we make kids better so that the generation that comes after us is superior to who and what we are. And that's what the world needs. Did I get your question correct, Derek? 100%, sir. 100%. Like I said, sir, that was all I had. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we get off here? Well, listen, I'm going to give Derek one of my business cards. Uh, If you like any of the stuff that I had to say and you're curious, uh, I am 52, so I'm somewhat inconsistent. uh, But I put some of my workouts. I put some of my diet stuff. uh, I put the books that I'm reading. I put book recommendations on my Instagram account. Uh, So if you got a chance, check it out. Uh, Once a month, we'll also put the Beat the Old Man Challenge. So if you're out there in Derek's podcast community uh, and you like the workouts that we're doing and you post the time, I'll give a shout out to anybody that that beats me. Uh, But I think the thing that's awesome here is Derek extended this opportunity to us. Coach Rao extended the opportunity to Oklahoma City Recruiting Battalion to get involved with the Elgin Wrestling Program and Elgin High School Wrestling. I I can't wait for next year. I think we're going to try to be a little bit bigger, a little bit better. But we're going to be back in the stadium and back under the lights for the Battle for Wichita. Uh, I'm going to try to get down for some dual meets this uh, this season. I hope to see some of the kids in the wrestling room and then certainly with the Elgin Wrestling Club. Um, I think Rob's working with us to put something together. I think we're trying to get a girls clinic 
uh, some here between August and September out there in Dumas with uh, all the girls wrestlers. Uh, so we'll see folks around. Hopefully you'll get a chance to wrestle on my wrestling mats. Uh, if you catch me on the jujitsu mats, uh, I'm a rusty brown belt, so you can come submit an old man if you get a chance. And then uh, hopefully you'll get to see some benefit for some of the stuff the Oklahoma Recruiting Battalion is trying to do for the Oklahoma wrestling community. Derek, I appreciate the time, man. Thanks for letting me get on your microphone. Hey, thank you, sir. Appreciate it.